Hey, once again, good morning. My name is Ben. I'm so glad you're here with us. We're continuing our message series called Seaworthy. And here, here's the basic point. Long before they launch a big boat like the ones you saw in the video out into the ocean, they check and double check all the subsystems to make sure they're ready. You don't put all that time, energy, money. You don't design a vessel for a purpose and then kind of hope that it's ready. No, you verify, you work, you run through all the different subsystems and you check them over and over and over again. And then when you're about ready and about to be done, you check them again just to make sure. Well, in this message series over the last few weeks, that's what we've been doing. Going back to essential things in our spiritual lives essential qualities, essential benchmarks, making sure that we have them together. We've explored issues like, where's, the, where's our faith? What is the quality of our faith? What is our faith in? Do we have faith in faith? Do we have faith in hope? Or do we have faith in Jesus, the Lord of the universe? And we've looked at a lot of very important things, and today we're going to explore a subject that honestly doesn't get enough airtime. And we suffer as a result since our culture doesn't talk enough about this important issue. It's deeply spiritual. It's deeply practical. And before we get into it, although I want you to think back with me for just a moment, if you can, to your best friend in junior high. Think about your best friend in junior high, all right, middle school, if you will, if, if that's the system you're in, but your best friend. Now, my, my best friend in, in junior high, it was a guy by the name of Chris Leggett. Chris lived in our neighborhood uh, Chris was a great guy. His house was just a, kind of around the corner from mine, and we, we had a lot of fun together. Back in the day, we played a lot of Atari 2600. A little shout out for the Atari 2600. Yeah, we played a lot of Atari 2600. We would trade cartridges back and forth, you know, and uh, he'd bring sometimes his to my house, and, and we, we would play, and, 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 and then we'd play ball out in the yard. We, we had a great time. Well, if you would have come to me when we were in junior high and said that Chris, the guy that I would play Atari with, the guy that we'd you know, pass the ball with, run around, begin to talk about girls with, if you'd have looked at me and said, you know, then in, in 20 years or so, Chris is no longer going to be the entire reigning king of space invaders on 20, you know, Atari 2600. Instead, what Chris is going to be doing in 20 years is he's going to be a missionary. He's going to be a missionary, and he's going to be in Africa, and he's going to be with his wife and children, devoting his life to serve people there in a practical way, doing education and, and skills training, helping women in the prison system find employable work when they get out, making microloans, changing an entire community. If you would have said that to me when we were in middle school together, kind of talking around and hitting each other and playing silly games with each other, I, I don't know that I could have fully comprehended it. I don't even know that I would have believed you. Here's why I wanted you to think about your friend in junior high. Most of us have no idea. Most of us haven't fully vetted out what God wants to do with our lives, let alone the lives of the people around us. Today, I want to give you permission to think in, in a bit of a selfish way, if you will, if you want to think about it that way. I want you to think about yourselves for the next 45 minutes or so as I go through this message series, as we sing our final songs and take our next steps together. I want you to think about yourself. I want you to, to contemplate, if you would, with me for a few moments about what God wants to do with your life and where he might want to take it. I can't fully paint that picture for you. You're, you're diverse. You have unique gifts and skills and opportunities, and you've already started down certain paths in your life, and I don't know all that God wants to do with you, but I do know as a pastor, as a high school teacher, as a dad, just as a guy— that there's one interesting dynamic that has a profound impact on what God is able to do with our lives. 
If it's true that he wants to launch our lives out onto the open seas, and I think it is, and if it's true what the scripture says, that he wants to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think with our lives, if he wants to go beyond, if all that's true, and I believe it is, I think it's important that we explore a dynamic that has the potential to significantly undermine what God wants to do in our lives. It's the topic of our appetites. Not throughout the word appetites, a lot of times we think about food. We think about food, but there are, there are all kinds of appetites, aren't there? There's the appetite for sex. There's the appetite for power. There's the appetite for responsibility, for love. We're all acceptance kind of hounds. I mean, there's the appetite for acceptance, for fame, for recognition. There are all kinds of appetites in life. And there's a spiritual principle that's illustrated in the pages of our Bible through people's stories, through the teachings of Jesus, through the writings of Paul as he helped people apply the teachings of Jesus. And here's the basic principle we're going to be looking at today. That your appetites, my appetites, your appetites will be either ruled by you or they will rule you. Your appetites, my appetites will either be ruled by us or they will control us. I believe that we typically haven't fully ever considered just how powerful our appetites really are. Think about it this way for just a moment. Your parents, if they're still alive, are in the place where they are in part because of the way they managed their appetites. I don't want to get all somber for a moment, but just to kind of elevate the importance of this subject. Some of you were abandoned emotionally by your parents because your parents had an appetite for alcohol. And that appetite for alcohol was outside the bounds, and they were unable to control it, and they ended up making decisions and choices, in effect, choosing the appetite over other, more important, ultimately, things in life that could have captured their attention, their imagination, their time, energy, and money. And some of your deepest pains are not because of an appetite that you have participated in that has gone beyond the boundaries, but because of some other person who did not manage their appetites in a way and it undercut their life and their life impacted your life in a negative way. I, I work in a church environment, that's kind of obvious. And here's something I've observed about the power of appetites. You would think, or at least I would think on some level, that appetites wouldn't have such a strong hold on us. But consider this. I have seen people like enraptured by a worship service captivated by the prayer, fully engaged in the worship, listening with rapt attention to a message. And within just 24 hours after that experience that lasted an hour, hour and a half, within just 24 hours after that completely submerging kind of experience, they were doing things that run completely counter to the very thing that had their full attention in the moment. I've observed with appetites, you can't really pray them away, kind of always there. You can't worship them away. You can't get so caught up in worship that the appetites don't continue to gnaw at you, at your gut, at your soul. It's just the nature of appetites. In fact, three big things about appetites. Here, here's three things I want you to know. I want you to know this about your appetites, that God created them. In and of themselves, they're not bad, but sin distorted them. In a moment, when we go to the pages of the Bible, you're going to see an appetite run unchecked, and you're going to see the destructive force of appetites outside their bounds. 
why it is that God was so clear about the kinds of things he'd like us to engage and the kinds of things he'd like us to avoid. It's going to be obvious to you. And you're going to be able to relate to the story because all of us, to some degree, have known what it is to feel our appetites pull at us, vie for our attention, and capture our imagination. Now, the reason they are there to begin with is because God created them. God created your desire for food, my desire for food. God created your desire for sex, my desire for sex. For affection, for acceptance, even for power, the ability to have influence. God created all that, but sin distorted them. Here's the second thing I'd like you to know about the, uh, the influence of your appetites. <laughs> your appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. He, you ever, after a Thanksgiving meal, push back on the table, then unbuckle your pants a little bit and say, I don't think I'll ever eat another bite. And then what happens three hours later? You're, you're run, rummaging through the refrigerator and you're thinking, if I could just get, where, where is that dressing, you know, just your appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. The best sexual experience in the world, whatever that was for you, your single pinnacle moment, whatever that was, man, how long was it till you wanted another one? It never fully satisfies. It's never completely done. Your appetites are always there. And here's the third thing I want you to keep in mind as we talk today and explore the Bible. See what God has to say about the power of appetites and the power of his spirit at work in us and why we have to take this stuff seriously and why we have to live it out. Number three, your appetites always whisper now and never later. Those urges that we feel for, for food, for, for sex, for power, for acceptance, to have influence, we all want it satisfied in the moment. And you can see this in, in a baby <laughs> when they're hungry. It goes from a, maybe a few little noises to an all-out cry. Zero to 60, doesn't it? Now, you, you see it in, 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 in immature adults, right? The, from the outside, you can look at them. They don't fully understand it. They don't have the perspective you have. And you can watch them move through a cycle again where they engage that destructive behavior that's outside the bounds. And you're thinking to yourself, why can't you just stop? And they can't, <laughs> and they can't even put it on hold often. Your appetites always scream now and never later. Here's the truth. Your response, my response to our appetites will determine whether or not God can and will fulfill his agenda in our lives, whether we'll participate with him to fulfill all that he wants for us. Now, I have to make something perfectly clear when we're talking here. Sometimes when you come to church, it seems like, at least to me, let me just talk in theological terms, that a lot of churches are focused on sin management. The, the, the unstated but sometimes obvious goal of a lot of congregations is, is to get people to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. I want to make it clear to you today, that is not my agenda today. We are a gospel-centered church that has this basic message, that no matter how you behave, there is a grace available to you through Jesus Christ. Because of his death and resurrection, your behavior and my behavior is not an essential part of the ingredients of getting to heaven. What I'm talking about today has nothing to do with the dynamic of how we are saved, sanctified, and ultimately justified by God in heaven. That's not what we're talking about today. I'm talking about this side of eternity. That the scriptures reveal to us that there is this principle in life that if we will generally attempt to walk life the way God designed it, 
in the boundaries he created, keeping our appetites in check, there is blessing and power and legacy and impact that is ours to be had. And if we let our appetites, this side of heaven, run amok, control us instead of controlling them, my hunch is a lot of us will still go to heaven. I mean, I don't know. I can't see the heart. I'm assuming. So it's just based on grace and not on works. But this side of heaven, our lives will look, well, it won't look like heaven at all. It'll look like the other place. And it's just the nature of life that these appetites that God created for us, he didn't just create them. He created them and said, within the boundary, they're powerful, they're good, they're helpful. But outside the boundaries, they'll burn you. This desire you and I have for progress, for respect, for responsibility. Think about it, men, ladies. You get a job and you get a promotion. What's the next thing you want? A little bit more responsibility, another promotion. For fame, for recognition, to be envied. You, you ever, you ever, maybe, maybe it was you, seeing the guy and, and it's, it, you know him and, and and you can tell that the girl he's with, it's, it's about her, of course, a little bit, but he also loves the way that other guys look at him and they, they think to themselves, how did he land a girl like that? There's something in us that wants to be envied. I'm a car guy, and here's the funny thing about cars. When I'm in my car, I can't even see the car that I'm in love with. I just want you to see me driving the car I'm in love with. I'm, I, I, <laughs> there's something in us that these appetites we have, left unchecked, are incredibly destructive in our lives. And so God has left for us in the pages of your Bible, in the stories of examples, in the explicit teaching of Jesus, in the writings of Paul as he tried to apply the teachings of Jesus in a local church context, examples of how important it is for us to keep our appetites in check, in bounds, to honor the moral universe that God created he didn't want any of us to be ignorant. So today, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 25 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your scriptures, go there. If not, on the side screens um, to my right and left, we're going to look at the story of Jacob and Esau. Let me take you back to the time when there was some um, significant things going on in the history of your Bible. Abraham and Isaac, they were... They were older. Abraham had passed. Isaac is on the scene. These are major pillars of the faith. And on the horizon is about to be born a couple of children. Here's what the scripture says. When the time came for her to be birth, uh, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And the first one came out and was red. The, the word used for red there is Edom. He was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Sure, he was very handsome, right? So they named him Esau, Esau, which is connected to the idea of red, all right? After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, Jacob. His name literally means supplanter, one who grasps at the heels. And Isaac, the dad, was 60 years old when Rebekah, the mom, gave birth to them. Verse 27, the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter. A man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah, his wife, loved Jacob. Jacob and Esau, 
could not be two diametrically opposed personalities. Esau was a man's man. Harry, rugged, loved the outdoors, killed a bear when he was three. I think I confused a couple stories there, but you get, you get the idea, all right? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob was a mama's boy, uh, if you want to put it that way. No judgment, just acknowledging what it was. He liked to cook, stay at home among the tents. And their affinity, each parent's affinity for each kid was obvious on display. The challenge was is that Esau, in Jacob's mind at least, was the older brother. And in that culture, the older brother carried a certain amount of positive blessing and positive door-opening experience for the older brother, and everybody else kind of got the leftovers. Specifically, if you were the older brother in that day, you got what was called the birthright. Now, this was a really, really big deal in ancient times. In fact, not all that long ago, the birthright was a big, big, big deal. In the Old Testament times, there were three key ideas around the birthright, three privileges, if you will. The first privilege is that if you had the birthright, you got a double portion of the inheritance. At the parents' death, they would divide the entire state into equal parts, one more part than there was number of kids, and the older brother would get two parts, everybody else would get the rest. So if there were two children, the older brother would get two-thirds, the younger brother would get one-third of the inheritance. That's a big deal. That wasn't all that came with being the oldest. You kind of got to be the judge of the family. So like if the family thing went on, you became the instant, you you inherited the, the patriarchal role, and if somebody had a dispute, they'd come to your old, older brother, and he'd listen maybe, or he just, this is what we're going to do. And everybody goes, all right, you're the older brother. That's what we'll do. But, but number three, this one's kind of like a, on a spiritual level in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and ultimately Jacob, who are the, the senior patriarchs of the Jewish faith and become central to the Christian faith as well. You got a sense of the blessing. This meant they believed, and the Bible seems to illustrate that the older person, the person who carried the birthright, got the sense that God's favor was with them. So the birthright was something to be cherished and honored. It was special, something of significant value that had not just impact on you, it had generational impact. Our story continues right where we left off in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, and here's what it says. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, because that's where he was, he'd been out hunting or something, and he came in famished. I'm going to say this again. You and I have little grasp and what God may use you to do in this world, if you and I will harness our appetites. Esau came into the area where Jacob was among the tents, and he was, in his mind, starving, about to die. Here's what it says in 25 verse 32. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. He's so hungry. What good is this birthright to me? Now, that, that was in response to a question that Jacob had posed to him. Give me some of that stew, and here's what Jacob says to him. I'll give you some stew if you'll sell me the birthright. If you'll give that to me, I'll give you this bowl of stew. Give me this great significant privilege, and I'll give you this immediate satisfaction. Now, anybody reading this story on the outside has the same reaction I'm having, maybe you're having it right now, and that is, who in their right mind would ever trade something as special as a birthright for a bowl of stew? We want to we say, well, nobody's that foolish. Nobody's that foolish. No, nobody would, would ever take something so significant and in a moment trade it all away. And if you're familiar with the Bible story, if not, let me let you in on what's happening here. That's exactly what Esau does. Overcome in the moment by a sense of hunger, an appetite, run amok. 
He makes a decision to take the most precious possession, his heritage, his legacy, his impact, and trades it away for a bowl of soup. One bowl in the moment versus a lifetime of legacy and impact. And this story alters the course of history. I don't understand all the reasons why he did it, but today psychologists study this kind of thing. And they tell us that at certain moments of life under extreme pressure, when we really want something, we really want something, that we're incredibly good at convincing ourselves that not only do we want it, but we need it. Here, here's what psychologists describe it as, the change in our brain. They call it impact bias. Impact bias. Impact bias tells your brain that this thing or experience or person is going to be extraordinarily satisfying. If I can do this just once, I'm going to be satisfied. If I can do this thing, the experience is going to be so overwhelming that whatever cost it feels like I'm going to pay, it's worth it. Impact bias. We convince ourselves how awesome it's going to be and we minimize any real cost to us. The other thing they, they talk about, psychologists talk about in moments when we really want something, is a thing called focalism. Focalism. Focalism is when we focus our mind on the one thing, but we can't see any other perspective. We get blurred out. You, you, you've seen this happen, focalism, when you try to take candy away from a kid. Right? You're talking about how easy that is. You ever try to take candy away from a three-year-old? Not so easy. They pitch a fit. I mean, you can, you can overpower them, but man, they they're so focused on the thing. They want it. They want it. We can talk about three-year-olds. We can talk about Esau. But here's the truth. We all would, we would all, at least most of us, give up our birthright for the rights to offer it at the right time. I know what you're thinking. You wouldn't do that. Right? You, you wouldn't do that. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. But I know this, in my experience as as a follower of Jesus, as a dad, as a husband, my experience as a teacher, my experience as a pastor says, that incredibly bright people that otherwise get it have made profoundly, apparently stupid decisions and in a moment or two traded significance, spiritual authority, legacy, impact often their families for nothing more than a bowl of stew or a woman or money or power (laughs) or to be envied or to experience some pleasure which is temporary and never satisfies i have seen it time and time again people in ministry I've never known a minister, to, I've never known, I'm sure that they exist, who lost their church, who lost their position of influence because they didn't get the right GPA in school <laughs> or, or had some finer point of theology that they had some ambiguity on. But I have known literally dozens, I could name them, who traded their legacy, their impact for a bowl of stew. It makes no sense from an outside observer, and yet that's what they did, and they can't recover fully, and not just pastors. I have known men who have traded a good woman with good kids and the potential for lifelong impact, generational impact in that family 
for another woman. I'm just a casual outside observer. I don't even mean to be funny. It's just true. I'm amazed at how many men have affairs with ugly women. Just amazed. You're like, you look at them, you go, oh my God. What are you thinking? It's not about beauty. It's, there's something else pulls. I'm amazed at how many men and women have lost their jobs and position and influence and a career over a few hundred dollars. And you think, as you look at them from the outside, who would do this? Who would ever trade all of this, all the hard work, years of effort, and the untold life they could live if they had just taken God's word seriously and honored his path? All of us from the outside looking in can see it. You've known them, and I've known them, and tragically, I've been there some. Maybe you have too. I think most of us, given the right circumstances, given enough time, would eat the bowl of stew at the right time, the right moment. And yet that's not the way it has to be. If you're a follower of Jesus today, there is another side of the story. A story that says that the only power at work in you is not simply your appetites. That there is another power at work in you. That when you committed your life to Jesus, he became more committed to you than you're ever going to be to him. And he was committed not just to your enjoyment, to your development. And he gifted you the power of the Holy Spirit that comes inside, takes up residence in us. That's the image we're given in the scriptures. And he gives us the capacity to resist appetites. To hold them at bay. And to not be a slave to our sex drive to our food drive, to our power drive, to our drive to be envied, to our drive to have prestige and honor. But instead, to hold our thoughts captive to his purposes. To one of the language, the language that Paul, the Apostle Paul uses is to crucify the flesh, this earthy part of us that always wants more and wants it now. And why does God do that? Because he doesn't like bowls of stew? No. In fact, often that bowl of stew is something at its core good. The desire for it at its core often is something good. But it's been marred by sin. Often it's something that if we could delay, many times, many, many times if we could delay, just momentarily we'd see it for what it really is. So, when Esau comes into the area of the tents and Jacob's there cooking, and they begin to strike this deal, here's what Jacob says in verse 33. He says, swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. I'm going to say it one more time. You and I have no idea what God might do in your life, through your life, if we'll surrender our appetites to him, not be controlled by them. So verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and he drank, and he got up and left. And here is the tragic verse. So Esau despised his birthright. Now listen, 
I don't think the writer here in Genesis is saying that, that Esau said, I don't care about my birthright at all. It means nothing to me and it's irrelevant to my life and I'm done with the birthright. I'm tired of it. In the moment, he made a decision where his appetites undermined his values and what he thought was going to be a momentary thing ended up having lifelong impact. Don't mistake this. You and I aren't all that different. Incredibly bright people, otherwise balanced people, people who have much of their spiritual life together have made similar decisions. You've seen it. I've seen it. It's tragic. But we all have the potential to trade our birthright for a bowl of soup. You're only a few steps away, so am I. And so that's why sometimes in churches, pastors get so serious about the subject of sin. Maybe some of them believe that really their job is to try to make good people out of everybody. We don't believe that here. We believe our goal is gospel-centered to get people to commit their lives to Jesus and let him do with you what he wants. So we're not really into sin management around here. But on the other hand, sin is incredibly destructive. And it's not caring for people at all. You're not caring for your families, Dad. You're not caring for your families, Mom. If you don't sound occasionally the warning that says, take seriously God's moral code. It all comes from the heart of our Father who loves us. And he says, I don't want you to trade your legacy for a bowl of stew. So let me show you in the pages of my word long before you fully understand it, long before you get my mind, long before you have my heart, long before you've grown up spiritually, let me show you how to walk this life in a way that your potential spiritually is unharmed and you're not adding baggage and weight to your life. But we often think we know better or we're focused and we can't see the thing. And focalism, kind of. And there's a Heavenly Father saying, Look, I told you to keep sex in the balance of one man, one woman for a lifetime because while the moment may feel awesome, you're trading a life of intimacy. That's really what's at stake. All this other stuff outside the balance will undermine and chip away at intimacy. That's why you've got to have sexual integrity as the Scripture defines it. When, when he talks to us about not stealing, telling the truth, being trustworthy, keeping your promises, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't make an oath unless you make it seriously and thoughtfully. These moral rules that our culture kicks against and fights against and tries to paint our God as some kind of cosmic killjoy. Our Heavenly Father's there going, no, 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 no. I see something that you're not considering in the moment. The birthright is precious. Don't despise it. It's yours to be had. You don't even yet know. Wouldn't it be awesome to be able to break into the story when Esau was there and going, wait, 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 Esau, Esau, listen, listen, listen. Some point, 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a man named Jesus, and he's going to come through this bloodline. And one day he's going to be talking to his disciples, and he's going to use this phrase, I am from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, don't trade that. You can't even see the impact. Don't trade that. 
really, you're so hungry you're going to die? Wouldn't it be awesome to break into the story of the people you care about and say, wake up, listen, listen, let me show you another side of this. Let me show you people who've made similar decisions. And it never goes well. That's why there are God's rules. They're not meant to rob you of joy. They're meant to protect your joy. But they often cause you to delay the gratification. And isn't that the issue? Isn't it really often a maturity issue? A perspective issue? If I... If I could give you, gift you, the mind of God for a moment, in those, in those powerful moments of decision, if we could impart to you the mind of God, instantly you would see the choice for what it really was, and you'd walk away from her. You'd walk away from that. You'd put a boundary there. Your appetites and my appetites have incredible influence in our lives. And every single day of your life, you're going to be tempted to trade away your future for a bowl of stew. I am, you are. It's the nature of our life, this side of heaven, in a sin-cursed world. And yet you're not a victim. Let's talk about two ways to harness our appetites real quick. Here's the first word. And I'm going to tell you, this word doesn't get enough airtime. Refrain. You know what that means? It means stop, hold off, pause, hit the pause button for just a moment. Many of you, your worst decisions in life, be honest, the worst decisions, some of them are still causing you grief, a momentary decision. There was a moment before you actually did the thing that you had a moment of, I don't know if I should do this. But rather than pausing there, you did what I often have done. Ah, there I am. And almost by getting engaged in the activity, engaging the process, I'm able to quiet that voice. For the follower of Jesus, let's make it perfectly clear. That voice is the Holy Spirit. It's God, the Father, gifting you the opportunity to refrain, to pause. Here's how you refrain. In light of my future, is it really worth trading my future for this? Is it worth trading the ultimate for the immediate? That's really what's at stake. Refrain. Here's the other one. Reframe. Get a new picture. See the other side. Let me ask you to think about this question. Where do you want to be five years from now? Where do you want to be five years from now? Financially? Your marriage? Your parenting? Some of you have a call on your life to do ministry. Maybe you're not ever going to earn a living that way, but you have a call on your life to impact people with the claims of Jesus in this world. Where do you want to be in five years? And I'm asking you to keep that picture in front of you. Where would you like your marriage to be if it were healthy? Keep that picture in front of you. What impact do you want to have on your kids? Keep that picture. Reframe this whole thing. So rather than talking about the Esau's, Rather than talking about the few people you know, let's talk about you for just a moment. What potentially is your bowl of stew? What is that appetite or a few appetites that in you, maybe you haven't even explored them, but they have the capacity more than others. You look at some people and say, I don't see how they'd fall for that, but you're blinded to your own one or two. 
What are your app? What is your bowl of stew? Right now. Is it a habit? That started off as fun and enjoyable, but now it's become a burden? It's enslaved you? Is it, is it a secret? Is it a person? What are you trading right now for your future? Some of you aren't married. And, and, and you've grown up in church and you know God's rules about sex and marriage. And you, you bought the lie of the culture that says, I can do this and it's going to have no real impact on me. In fact, you fully intend at one point to walk God's way. You fully intend to. What, what are you trading? The now for the ultimate. When the Apostle Paul was writing about the challenges of living in this fallen world, to the Corinthian church. He was talking about how difficult sometimes it is, the gap between here and heaven, and kind of trying to bring heaven down to our life now. And he talked about there's always going to be a challenge. And then, then he breaks out in chapter 15 in this kind of uh, praise to God about that one day the struggle's going to be over and the battle in our appetites, the battle in this world is going to be completely gone and death will have lost its sting and the grave will no longer be victorious. And on the heels of that thought, when it's all going to be over, here's what he says. Almost as if he reflects and says, it's not all about then. There's power here and now. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, these words. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always Give yourselves fully to the work of God in your life and through your life because you know that your labor, your struggle, your effort is not in vain. Taking God's moral law seriously, understanding that behind his moral law is his heart that says, I only want good for you. Don't take the temporary. Take the ultimate. This is our heart for you as a church. This is my heart for you as a pastor. My heart for my wife, my kids. That's why, that's why if you're in your 20s, that's why sometimes your parents still lean into you. It isn't simply that they want to control you. They're trying to impart, they hope to impart, and maybe they don't do it perfectly, and maybe they don't have the moral authority to do it, but they're trying to impart to you some sense of caution because they know that some decisions are going to cost you more than you realize what they're going to cost you. God's word is there for us. And one of the basic system checks we have to take as believers in Jesus is whether or not we're going to take his moral law seriously. Not believing that it secures heaven for us, but believing that if we take the God of heaven and apply his rules on this earth, we bring a bit of that heaven to our life here and now. So why don't we do this? Let's take out our connect card and take a few steps together as a congregation. I wonder if there's anybody in this room that would say, Ben, I, I, uh, I, I have blown it. I'm not perfect. The Bible would call you a sinner. I want to give you a chance to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And in doing so, you can accept forgiveness. He'll wipe away the penalty, the eternal penalty of your sins. He'll secure a relationship. Now, you may still have some payment to do here on this side of earth, some cleaning up to do. But God becomes your partner in life. And that happens because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we'll use sometimes the phrase forgiver and leader. 
You can do that by checking next step A. And in a moment when I pray, you can use my words. You can borrow your own and say to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'd like you to forgive my sin. I want to commit my life to you. I want to accept the free gift of salvation that you bought for me on the cross and in your resurrection. I don't know all that it means, but I want to give my life to you and let you become my leader. You can start that today. And then when the offering bucket comes by at the end of service, put that card in there, and we're going to communicate with you. You're not joining our church. You're not communicating to, to give money. You're not committing to that at all. But we just want to send you some information about what it means to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your forgiver and your leader. Now, how about next step B? You want to get baptized. Some of you who have a lot of regrets, one of the most powerful things you can do is to go public with your faith and say, I know I have blown it, but today I declare a new beginning in Jesus. And I want you to celebrate that with me. Check the box, put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of the service and one of our team members will be in touch with you. How about next step C? I wonder if there's anybody that would be honest. You don't have to give me the details. You don't have to give our prayer team the details, but you would say, pray with me to get my appetites under control and in line with God's spirit. I just want to join with you. You're not alone. We've been there. We don't want you to be Esau. How about next step, D? I wonder if anybody would say, I'm going to pray for someone who has despised. It looks to me, you're not judging, but it looks to you like they've despised his or her birthright. You just want to lift them up in prayer and know that there are new beginnings in Christ. Some of you carry a burden for somebody close to you. It's a good thing. We can't control their life. We can pray for them. How about next step, E? I wonder if there's anybody who would say, Ben, I love what the Lord's done in my life. I'm not perfect. I'm not there all the way. But here, here's something I feel like I could do. I want to have a conversation with the leader here at Four Corners about leading a Four Corners Fall 2013 small group. I don't know how I can, but if there's any way I can help other people grow in their faith in Jesus, I just want to be a part of that. Maybe this is way outside the box for you. What would one conversation cost you? 20 minutes, 30 minutes of your time to consider how you can be a part of encouraging others to follow Jesus. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I want to thank you for your heart, that you love us, and you don't speak condemnation over us. You speak life, you speak new beginning, you speak second chances. And so today, Lord, as we've looked at at the appetites that you've given us that are run amok, uh, amok in this sin-cursed world, I pray, God, that you would, first of all, give us a picture of you, of your love for us, of your heart for us, and then you would make us resolute to walk your way, to know it and to walk it. Help us, Lord. I pray for those that are deciding to make you their Lord and Savior. They're saying yes to you. What you've already offered to them, they're accepting. I pray for those, Lord. They're going to be stepping into exploring these, these appetites and getting them under control. I pray for those in this congregation you're going to use to bring the Christ life to others. And we give it all to you. Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen.